Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. I've just poured myself a cup of tea. I'm uh, sitting here with Dr. Jason Fox. Uh, we're in Soho, London. It's a, oh, it's a lovely, grey, cloudy day, yeah. <laughs> as it tends to be in London. Yeah, deceptively warm today. Uh, but but you, you seem to fit in. You actually seem more part of this landscape than I do, I have to say, with your uh, fine beard and... Uh, three-piece uh, coat set. Yeah, thanks. I think I feel like I'm, I'm addicted to Mr. Porter and uh, London fashion and stuff. It's, you've uh, sort of got a Victorian steampunk uh, yeah. aura about you that I think is very appropriate for these environments. Oh, I try to cultivate it. Have you, have you heard there's this, um, there's this, there's this term, uh, there's this concept of enclosed cognition. Have you heard of this? Enclosed cognition? Yeah, enclosed cognition. Is this like being a dandy or...? Somewhat, right. So what they found was they did some research with different folks and they gave one group of people uh, a white coat and they said it's a painter's coat and they did some tests and so on. And then they gave another group uh, a coat and they said it's a doctor's coat. Um, And the group that thought they were wearing a doctor's coat performed higher in the tests than the painter's coat. And there's a psychological theory around enclosed cognition where the clothes that you wear shape how you think and feel. And so I, I know if I if I had rocked up in shorts and thongs and a singlet, I would not feel anywhere near as like capable and smart for this. As this, I, this explains Australia's problems in a, in a nutshell. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yes, exactly. You know, I think Umberto Eco wrote a very sexist essay. I, mm-hmm. I think in, in the early '80s, where he basically said that blue jeans, um, tight blue jeans, can essentially uh, describe your consciousness. I think it was like an early version of this. Yeah, yeah. But I think he was just basically making a very sort of pervy uh, observation about the women he saw on the street. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. In, in, uh, uh, couched well, in academia. <laughs> I, 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 but I do feel that there's something, going back to the Victorian thing, there's something, for me at least personally, there's a, there's a quality in what that manifests and how I think about things and, you know, uh, and I've... And so, yeah, so thanks for the observation. So, <laughs> a, it, it, one of the things that I, I one of my favorite books uh, from Neil Stevenson actually wasn't uh, Snow Crash, it was The Diamond Age. And have, have you read that? No, I haven't read that one. It's Snow Crash. It, 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 one of these, it was, it was amazing book. It's basically set in the near future where nanotech has sort of become ubiquitous. Um, and in this world, there are sort of, you know, there are the, there are the wealthy engineers who've gone back to Victorian values because they found that that was the most civilized way to organize a highly technological society. Mm. Uh, but this young lady's primer, which is basically a Kindle, falls in the hands of someone from the lower classes and then promptly in a sort of Pygmalion fashion starts to overeducate her. Uh, but this was such an influential book that the name of this girl was Fiona and Jeff Bezos had actually named the building where the Kindle was developed as the building was called Fiona. Oh, uh, wow. Well, not the building, but actually the operating system. If you look inside the code of the Kindle, yeah, there's still right. references to Fiona inside oh, the operating wow. system. Wow. Brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, for the listeners, uh, we very really just jumped into uh, marginalia. Uh, I didn't finish introducing my wonderful guest today. Uh, so Jason, uh, if you don't already know, is the best-selling author of a number of books, uh, How to Lead a Quest. 
which isn't, as you might suspect, uh, an account on how to win at uh, Warcraft, <laughs> uh, and also Game Changer. I want to talk a bit about that and other things. Uh, he's also an expert in motivational design. Mm. Yes. And yes. pioneering philosophy, he tells me. I, I don't know what that is. Yes. But I'm not quite an expert yet in hearing my <laughs> stuff being introduced. But yes, moving on. <laughs> he's, he's blushing a very deep shade of red. Uh, come. But his beard is red, so it's actually quite, quite disconcerting. Uh, <laughs> you know, one of the things I want to talk about right up front, because you know, something in my own area that I've been really fascinated in is sort of the rise of automation and uh, artificial intelligence and machine learning in the enterprise and I think one of the consequences of all that is that the humans that end up remaining in jobs we're going to have to take these issues of motivation and culture and performance a lot more seriously mm, yeah oh yeah undoubtedly um, there's if you think about the different eras we've gone through there's the industrial era um, then we had the information age um, of which industrial thinking has still been largely applied to information and knowledge-based work. But we are on the cusp of the conceptual age, wherein things like imagination, curiosity, empathy, uh, these types of uniquely human things that can't easily be automated or replicated by machines, they're going to be the things that emerge as that which has much more value. Um, of course, for lawyers, things as you know, it's going to be patchy in how it um, comes about for folks. but. But certainly, you know, with automation taking over fairly formulaic uh, or algorithmic tasks with predictable outcomes, one must ask themselves then of what of what we do at the work that we do. What is actually what's actually meaningful progress, and what might be at risk of being taken over by a machine? Yeah, and uh, I think the the difficulty in some sense is how do you measure a lot of those those softer attributes like empathy and creativity and originality and curiosity uh, in a way we can measure the other stuff because the whole of work has been designed essentially to prove its own equation yes exactly yeah yeah <laughs> I mean we, we can measure traditional work because traditional work was measured by showing up mm. by punching in and punching out yeah you didn't really measure outcomes that much at all yeah 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 and this this is I think this is this is what is distracting us um, because our our focus uh, and our behavior, our attention will naturally gravitate to that which provides the richest sense of progress. The things that provide the richest sense of progress often have the most immediate and tightest feedback loops. So if you want to improve with performance within an existing paradigm, that's fine because you have last year's results or last quarter's results, you just need to do what you did before but just slightly better. This is wonderful for like incrementalism, right? but if we're wanting to pioneer, I mean incrementalism is not going to be... Um, it's not going to outpace um, software or automation um, and so if we want to pioneer we need to go beyond um, oh is everything okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay cool um, yeah so I, I think I've just tied myself in the loop there but um, <laughs> yeah so there's I think I think though the, the thing is 
these changes are coming, but I think for many leaders, we're in this situation where we're almost too busy to notice it. Because there's so much competition, we find ourselves, or many folks find themselves, you know, we have to compete. Uh, and that means being as efficient as possible. And because we're efficient and because we're busy, time is poor, we naturally seek quick fixes, shortcuts, familiar solutions, things that minimize the amount of cognitive effort we need to apply to things. And because we are minimizing the cognitive effort, it means that we're not thinking as much about what we do and we're just perpetuating more and more of the noise that might incrementally get us ahead, but is not going to be what we need if we were going to be really pioneering and staying relevant in the future. Um, and so that's a big opportunity for us. A lot of a lot of work is, is, is the appearance of being busy, right? And doing yeah, work. Yeah. And there's sort of this this Protestant work ethic about when you come in, when you leave, mm. uh, how many documents you generate, how many emails you send. Yeah. Uh, we sort of have a uh, a kind of a trophy case of effort. Yeah. Yeah. And but interestingly. There, there are some pioneers in this space. I, I, I really love um, reading the work and thinking of Jason Fried from um, Basecamp. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, he, he wrote that book, Rework. Rework, right? yeah, along with his uh, business partner. And there's this notion where managers, uh, that, that, that role, the concept of management is going to become increasingly irrelevant because with asynchronous communication, so the ability for us to see what people are working on, where people are at and things, combined with the fact that a lot of the work that we do, if it's complex work, there's an inherently motivating element to it. So it means that people can self-regulate the work that they do if it's open and it's visible, which means that if we go back to this conceptual age that we're about to go in, the imagination, the curiosity, the empathy, it's much more collective sense-making than it is around metrics and measures and key performance indicators. If we're talking about things that can easily be measured and quantified, chances are that's the same work that can easily be automated as well. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, there so how, how, how do you recognize good work then? Yeah, well, you know, let's define good work. Um, I would suggest that good work is that which goes beyond the default, yeah. That which involves discretionary effort, curiosity, empathy beyond beyond the default, beyond the norms, and essentially that which brings us closer to future relevance. So people might be really good at being busy doing something that's not actually that relevant or needed or not actually moving the company closer to future relevance. What does relevance. future relevance mean? Oh, ooh. okay, not many people probe that deep. Um, okay, so I would think about relevance in the sense of... Um, and I've got this feeling that, you know, you'll have a better sense of this than I will, but I'll hazard a guess anyway. And my sense is that um, if you look at the business model that you have or your modus operandi and you compare and contrast that against multiple possible future contexts, it's likely that you'll see particular incoherencies manifest. Um, so if your business model is coherent, it means that the things that you're doing make sense in the current context. So if you're advertising with a telephone book in today's age, one could argue that's incoherent because of the internet. Yeah. 20 years ago, it would have made perfect sense, but today it just doesn't make any and sense. In five years' time, it'll be, uh, it'll be hipster and retro. Kind of well, yes, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's Especially like, if you're selling like, you know, handcrafted cocktails. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> that's, that's right. 
and and you know, and that could be a wonderful side conversation, the kind of resurgence of these things. But you know, this notion around okay, what's what's future relevance then? It requires us to have the curiosity, the empathy to anticipate the emerging needs in the market, and the ability to compare. what you're currently doing across multiple future contexts. So the savvier leaders are asking themselves, all right, so what does it mean if we're moving towards, uh, more likely to be moving towards a gig-based economy where employees recognize that they own their time, that employers don't own their time necessarily. How does that work for us? And what are the things that we're doing now that just won't make sense in the very near future? So it's kind of like this concept of paradigm shift, Mm. which has sort of been around for a long time, but... It, it, it more recognizes that uh, it's not this once-off changing of the guard. It's sort of yeah. this constant shifting of relevance. Yeah. And, and you've got some people in the organization who are doing useful work to help redefine that. And you've got other people who are trying to lock it down yes. and defend the past. Yes. Uh, right. In a way, this sort of balances nicely with this thing Reed Hastings always talks about. And... Uh, he always he published this famous Netflix culture deck, you know, quite a few years back, where he said that the people he can't stand are uh, process-driven people. Mm. He, he said, you know, we have to get our talent density right. We have to have more pro- performance-driven as opposed to process-driven people. Mm. Otherwise, you know, we can be a company that makes no mistakes. Um, everyone follows the rules, but the minute there's a new business model or a competitor or, a, as you say, a, a shift in future relevance. Anyone that could have helped us reinvent it had been pushed out by the people that love stability. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah. It's a constant tension between what I would call operational leadership and pioneering leadership. So there's, there's the defaults, and 80% of the time we want to have defaults, options we choose automatically, in the absence of viable alternatives. But my worry for most organizations, it looks like more like 98% of the time. Well, what is, what is default thinking? Uh, default thinking is where we um, essentially, as we go through life, we start to have, we, we have experiences, we start to recognize patterns, and we start to build out a set of preferences around things that we've observed. Um, if, uh, was pattern recognition, right? I mean, Essentially, so, some of these heuristics are useful. Uh, I mean, we of course, yeah, we, we learn that these situations generally mean X. Yeah, yeah, and so these patterns essentially create cognitive shortcuts, which right. means that we can, we, it saves us time in cognitive banks. And eighty percent of the time in an organization, I think this is great. You go to hire someone, chances are you've hired someone before. You don't need to think from scratch. You can look at what you've done before and make a little bit of improvement on that. But my worry, from what I observed. What I observed, it looks like more like 98% of the time, uh, leaders are operated, uh, run by default thinking. Um, it's almost as though people have become too busy for meaningful progress. Uh, and if we reference Daniel Kahneman's thinking fast and slow, we could say that the majority of the time seems to be system one thinking, quick, instinctual, inherently flawed, and subject to cognitive bias thinking that gives us quick fixes and familiar solutions. But misses the bigger opportunities that that could be could happen if we were to pioneer and think a little bit deeper and ask more questions and be more curious. So, so the deeper thinking, in a way, challenges the cognitive biases of, of default thinking. Yeah, yeah, right. exactly. Yeah. Uh, on the automation side, um, people distinguish this between people that think their job is to make decisions as opposed to people who realize that the real work is actually designing systems to make decisions. Yeah. Because yeah. The, the act of decision making is full of inherent cognitive bias. Yes. But designing systems, I mean, there may be bias, but 
it, it's easier to detect it in the design phase yeah. because you can interrogate the assumptions of the system rather than the uh, yeah. power of the decision holder. That's really elegantly put. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because, and that's something, you know, that's more of the meta level thinking, right? Yeah. You're, you're thinking about the thinking um, there. Um, but, you know, in the modern workplace, um, the answer is stacked against us from actually doing this because there are so many feedback loops that reward richly default thinking and doing what's familiar. Um, and well, what, are, what examples of feedback loops are there? Oh, well, you know, I was just about to say, it's like the, the tired example is email. It's like a variable reward ratio. Um, we every time we look at our phone there's a chance that we might feel important um, it's a Skinner box right? It, exactly yeah <laughs> yeah um, and yet you know email provides a visible uh, demonstration to the organization look I'm doing things and I, I was recording um, reading a, um, a Dan Arley the um, head of the Center for Advanced Hindsight the author of Predictable, uh, Predictably Irrational was recalling a story where he was talking about uh, talking with a, a locksmith, and this locksmith had been called up to pick someone's lock, and um, he was saying earlier in his apprenticeship, he would, um, you know, it'd take him about an hour sometimes, and a high chance he'd break the lock. Um, but people were happy to pay him it off and give him a tip. But nowadays, he does the same job. He has prices haven't changed, but that job happens in like five minutes, and he doesn't break the lock. But now people are pissed off and they don't want to pay him. And the reason is, you think they'd be happy, but no, it's it's got to do with perception of value. We tend to value effort more than we value value, which is why you know it's something like email. Email provides this sense of effort. You know, meetings, unnecessary <laughs> meetings. There's all this visible sense of progress. This pantomime, the noise around actually doing the work instead of doing the work itself um, yes so we're up against some some challenges and it takes a different type of leadership philosophy to lead in this new world one that loosens the grip on quantitative measures and immediate feedback loops and all the I guess the more industrial minded um, ways to approach leading and managing people but we're, we're hard I mean our whole reward system in our mind is hardwired for short I yeah. mean, you, you can't, yeah. you can't sort of, you it's, can't sort of undo a couple, of, you know, a million years of evolution. I know. I know. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, do we do we essentially need um, new emotional empathy-based feedback loops? I mean, well, do we just need to come up with a new email? It's <laughs> well, it's interesting because like, you know, looking at some of the experiments that folks have done with open plan offices, right, which are now um, for some organizations becoming distraction factories where people actually can't get work done yeah so the leaders avoid going there because they actually get more work done at home um, but new designs actually around office spaces have found that if you work on a hub and spoke type model where you have like areas where there's serendipity and people colliding and stuff but then corridors where you can do your own deep work that's that's something that seems to be working. I, I actually, on my podcast, uh, a couple of episodes ago, I interviewed the, some of the principals from MBBJ, which is this sort of top architecture firm that used computational design. Yeah. But one of the theories they were talking about was prospect and refuge, that yeah, it, yeah. It, come, it comes from neuroscience. Essentially, people want to be able to see around, to feel safe, but also they need a cave behind them or refuge yeah. in, in order to feel protective enough in order to feel safe enough to, to be useful. Yeah. There's also this, um, the introverted part of me, whenever I go to, you know, uh, in a room, I'll try to find a corner and back myself uh, there. And that's be that's my feng shui, you see, as yeah, well. Yeah. Right? <laughs> uh, 
uh, there's always this thing in Feng Shui, you should never have your back to a door. I mean, presumably in case ninjas attack and you won't yes, be ready. Of course, so, yeah. Uh, but on that same point, um, I, I recently read Deep Work by Cal Newport and it made me realize just how, how rich life is in distractions, in particular network tools. Um, I think that what the world has become enamored with its LinkedIn's, Twitter's, Facebook's, Slack's, Yammer's, different networking tools which are in many, many ways so wondrous uh, in terms of the ability to, for organizations to be responsive and to connect really good thinking, but also in many ways uh, it's corroding our ability to do deep work, to yeah. actually to focus, to ponder, to stay in the tension, the angst of good thinking instead of just jumping to a quick fix or a familiar solution. We've sort of, we've sort of discovered with the internet cognitive crack um, mm. both on the social media side like in, in terms of the way that we present ourselves and communicate but we're, all we've done is we've taken all those social tools and then just kind of corporatized them yeah we, we've, we, we, we've used them as the model to define our enterprise collaborations as well yeah yeah and therefore they're self-referential and self-perpetuating right. you know it's and just because it's not e and what you're saying which I think is right just because it doesn't look like email doesn't mean it's not just a, a more weaponized version of <laughs> yes, you know exactly. it's like the next level version yeah, of email yeah. distraction <laughs> yeah yeah which is interesting now you know we've got wearables um, but then you know we may shift to to more augmented or embedded stuff it's just the consciousness around alerts and disruptions and interruptions in your day I think it's something that if going back to this automation thing if we want ourselves to be distracted all day chances are we're not going to be doing the work that um, can't be easily replaced by machine well so much of this social interaction weirdly enough the things that we think are the most human could be very easily automated mm. uh, I mean when you think about our behavior on Instagram, how we like certain photos and our comments. It's actually so easy to impersonate human beings that maybe we'll get to the point where we'll just delegate our social feed activity to bots for us and we can actually go back to doing work again. I was at a, I was at a, <laughs> uh, a Gartner conference once and there was a, a guy, a Dutch uh, guy, talking about possible futures and he had this quadrant model. Um, and one of the worlds is where you're saying that, look, um, privacy is going to become a thing of the past, but um, because uh, some people actually want to be harder to access, one of the scenarios might be there might be mercenaries out there that will essentially set up multiple bots replicating your social media stuff to create more digital noise to make it harder for people to find the real you. So you'll have multiple clones creating more noise. This is, this is the Kim Kardashian effect, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> There's millions yeah. of Kim Kardashians. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or versions of her. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I like how before we did this, we came up with a nice plan, kind of like... No, we're still progressing. I still see the structure. <laughs> okay, oh, cool, cool. Uh, and okay, actually, okay. I was going to say that this sort of leads us on to this idea of, you know, of games and, and, and how we interact with each other. Mm -hmm. uh, your previous book on Game Changer was really a, a lot about the science of gamification and how we interact. And it feels like this stuff's having a second life now, again, be yeah. because of some of these cognitive distractions. Yeah, and I should hazard that um, I have big issues with the term gamification, so I, I feel like it's been corrupted by consultants. It's, a, a lot of folks approach that, and I mean, I, I don't really like using the term, um, but 
so superficiality is a sign because it's easy to replicate the existing system of rewards and hierarchies and did, did you not like it because did you feel it was sort of becoming a tool of corporate management to control employees psychologically it was really exciting in the early days so like game designers um, motivation scientists and, and folks like that game designers do amazing work in player empathy and thinking about flow states Milicic Semihai's flow model of feedback loops of a sense of progression of mastery of narrative of meaning of purpose of social fabric and all those wonderful things and then I think what happened is as all good emerging concepts are, um, some folks saw there's a bit of a commercial opportunity to exploit, and um, they cherry-picked some of the more superficial elements of games, slapped them together, and tried to make some money selling gamification. Let's gamify right. this. And, yeah, because millennials would be so much happier when you underpay them, but give them some status <laughs> yeah. award badges they can earn. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It's um, Yeah, so, so we saw a lot of superficial stuff that had novelty that might have worked in the short term, but I don't think actually serves in, in a longer term sense of meaningful motivation and progress. Whereas I think some of the philosophies around game design and how we have, and some of the elements of the enduring elements of games, like you look at, uh, I'm a Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, I, have, I don't actually play a lot, um, but in the part, I'm, I've been really fascinated by this notion of people creating characters and people gathering together around the table and... I don't know, this sounds like the Bill Clinton defense that you smoked but didn't inhale. I, I, don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think there's a half state with uh, Dungeons and Dragons. If you're in, you're in. Yeah, well... So you have yeah, to embrace it, I, I'm I would I'm in, say. but I've never done a live-action role-play. I don't have my costumes yet. Or if you own a 12-sided dice, that's it. You're finished. Uh, yeah, you're, yeah, well... You're a D&D well, yeah. So, um, but yet there's this notion, right? So, um... In, in, in a game, there's so many beautiful parallels to real life. In a game, if you want to level up, you need to get experience points. The only way you can get experience points is by engaging in challenges. The higher the challenge, the more experience points you get. Simply staying within your comfort zone does not generate experience points. Um, and the same could be said, therefore, in life. And so we start thinking about, all right, so this real-world character that we're playing in this real-world role-playing game, this massively multiplayer real-world role-playing game of life, um, what are the meaningful challenges that we're leaning into? What does progress actually look like in this right. game? Um, if we were to level up, what does that actually mean? What are our attributes and the skills and where might we invest our efforts uh, in terms of meaningful progress? So that, 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 that is curious. So it's not so much progress in terms of a corporate goal of more profit or productivity. It's, it's more about the shared journey of lots of people, both individually and collectively, gaining more experience. Well, but to what end? Yeah, yeah it's, and it, it can also be applied in, in a corporate context. I think that the, the interesting thing um, when we're thinking about this, and this is a wonderful meta theme around the automation, right? Because if we want people then to be leaning into the work that matters, we need to get curious, okay, what does that look like? So in the corporate context, we, we can actually apply this and work meaningfully towards uh, these type of goals through mastery progression. I think it comes back to the more fuzzier qualitative elements, which then brings it back to philosophy. Uh, one of the, the key books um, that, that I, I, I love, uh, and I know that Dan Pink and a lot of the, uh, Jane McGonigal, uh, a lot of the folks in this, uh, the game design world is um, 
have read is, is a book by James Cass called Finite and Infinite Games, A Vision of Life as Play and Possibility. In this book, he argues that there are at least two types of games. One could be called finite. These games are played for the purpose of winning. Right. They usually they have a start and an end point. Um, and the other could be called infinite. And these games are played for the sake of continuing the play. I think a lot of the traditional gamification approaches and a lot of conventional work that's automate, easily automated yeah, are finite games. Oh, this is stuff that DeepMind classically makes small work of. Mm, mm, mm. Yeah. yeah. Whereas the, the infinite play, you know, James Powell says only that which can change can continue. And in fact, he has another quote that says, finite players play within boundaries, infinite players play with boundaries. A finite game, the nature of its of its ending gives you an outcome to measure yourself by. Yes. But is the measure of success in an infinite game just getting an extra life and like longer time? Continuing the play, um, bringing right. more people into play, and the parallel. So it's I not just extending time, because that, in, in a way, is a finite outcome. Well, well, time is an interesting thing to think about in terms of uh, what that means. Um, the infiniteness within time. But I think that the, the parallel, which is much more mundane, what you were saying before about systems, right? So um, there's one thing to play within the system, but it's the other to be actually crafting the systems. At the, then, at the meta level. Yeah, which then, and I think that's the space that the more that we can think at that level, the more we, how we can see how our efforts are contributing to something bigger than us, and the more we have the ability to dance around that and to only that which can change can continue to keep up pace with the systems as, as they evolve, the more likely we are to stay it's relevant. It's exciting stuff and uh, it's, it's so frustrating because you can actually see the glimpse of a much more interesting, better world where, where, where human beings are acting on this level and, and that automation may actually make our lives better by forcing us to change the nature of work. Yes. But it's going to be a painful few years for a lot of people too. Oh yeah, yeah. Some fun times ahead. <laughs> well, Jason, it was great to catch up with you here in London. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com/slash-between-worlds.